This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, an NIH scientist is diversifying genetics research. It's led to groundbreaking results in combating obesity, high blood pressure, sickle cell disease, and more. Then, the U.S. military shot down a Chinese spy balloon that was spotted lingering over nuclear missile facilities. What intel the device was after and what it took to get it out of the sky. And the government's focus on improving the customer experience may be paying off. We detail the findings of the American Customer Satisfaction Index's 2022 Federal Government Report. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Scientific accuracy depends on quality data. At NIH, that means ensuring that genetic information used in research reflects the world's diversity. Neil Hanchard is a senior investigator and head of the Childhood Complex Disease Genomics Section at the National Human Genome Research Institute. Neil, welcome to the program. Thank you, it's nice to be here. So what exactly does diversifying genetic research mean? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, so, you know, I think traditionally when we, we think about health and where we want to go in terms of the next frontier of health, you know, we want to ensure that we are able to provide the right medications for the right treatment for the right person. Um, and in order for that to be applicable to everyone, it's important that we involve everyone in the research that underpins that. Um, and genetic research is very much at the core of, of that endeavor. And what's the current state of diversity in genetics research? Is it, is, are we at the point that, that we're there or? No, unfortunately we're not, we're not there. Um, I think traditionally genetics research has focused on a sort of subset of groups of people, at least from a genetic ancestry standpoint. And in fact, the recent estimates are that maybe 10, 20% of genetic, big genetic studies involve um, populations, say, outside of European ancestry. And give us an example of a particular disease that you might have uh, researched or studied. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think that we're, we're, we're learning more every day, so there's more and more stuff that's coming to it. I mean, I can think about research that has involved, um, say, childhood onset deafness. Um, deafness is uh, very genetic in origin, and the vast majority of sort of general um, birth deafness involves, um, say, two genes in populations of European or Asian ancestry. Um, but when you look in African ancestry individuals, those two genes only account for maybe 10%, maybe 5%. And so you can see that it's important for us to involve everyone if we want to have accurate diagnoses. So, so but what does that tell you? Like, what, how, do you, how do you go from understanding that to helping kids yeah. that have deafness? Sure. So, uh, w you know, as we learn more and more about the genes that are involved, we start to learn more about what it means to hear and the sort of mechanisms and molecular parts of how you hear. And that means that we're in a better place to um, create new treatments, to have new interventions, not just for people who, say, have congenital deafness or from a particular group, but for everyone, including people who have deafness when they're uh, getting older. 
And give us an idea of um, the LDL that you studied, right? This yeah. is the bad cholesterol. A lot of people in the United States have that issue. So what did you find out when you looked at the genetics behind it? Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's the, the genetics of LDL and cholesterol has been known for many, many years. Um, and so it's, it's one of the things that um, people can test for now in, in terms of genetic sequencing. We can sequence the genes that are responsible for it and identify those uh, variants that might be causing a problem. Um, when we started to look at individuals who are of African ancestry and start to sequence through their genomes, we're finding that some of those genes, some of the variants in those genes are much more common than we thought. Um, and because having very, very, very high cholesterol is a relatively rare event, we expect that the variants that are going to cause that are going to similarly be rare. Um, and so one of the ways in which we decide whether or not a genetic variant is likely to be causing a problem or not is that we think about how common or rare it is. But rare is very relative to the reference that you're dealing with. And so if we don't have the full breadth of information, then we're not able to um, accurately uh, diagnose that. And do you also look at environmental factors? Because it could be, you know, differences in diet, differences sure. in air quality. Sure, and differences in diet um, and any number of environmental factors are always going to play a role and it's in many ways how our genes or our bodies sort of interact with that. The, the hard part is that environment is pretty big. There are a lot of things that go into the concept of environment and so being able to um, get a handle on that and the sort of data that you need to amass and the statistics that you need to do it with um, is a pretty daunting task and so that's where we are now. We're trying to sort of integrate the two things to understand how your genes, how your body um, adapts to different environments. And tell us real quick about the, the mission of the National Human Genome Research Institute and how your work fits into that. Sure, um, so as, especially as it re relates to genomics and genetics diversity, um, the Genome Institute has both um, sort of extramural programs or the programs that fund researchers from across the country, sometimes across the world, to be able to do genetic research. And a part of that is ensuring that those individuals are also mindful of having diversity among the, the people that they're studying. Um, but there's also an internal component to the, the Genome Institute, which is people like myself and, and others who have been on this program, um, where the focus is more on um, direct funding of the studies that we do and in many ways supporting studies that involve various populations around the world. So Neil, tell us a little bit about your background and your kind of career path and your journey. Yeah, it's a, it's a little convoluted. It's not the standard kind of path. Um, I grew up in Jamaica. That's where I did medical school. Um, I then did a PhD as a, as a Rhodes Scholar in uh, the UK. Um, and then I trained in pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And then I did clinical genetics as a sort of training fellowship in Houston before coming to the NIH um, to set up my lab. And so I've tried to mix many of the sort of experiences and uh, research backgrounds that I've gotten through those experiences so that there's a, there's a little bit of pediatrics, there's a little bit of genetics, and we're trying to put it all together. And you know, we're talking about diversity in uh, research. There's also not a whole lot of diversity in research staff. So what do you do about that? Right. Uh, so that's, that's certainly a problem, especially because uh, communities tend to want to engage with and be part, participate in research that's run by researchers who come from their community. Um, and so there are a number of programs, both at the NIH and NHGRI level, but then also through a number of other organizations to try and ensure that, um, it, first of all, that we're educating people from all walks of life about genetics, um, inspiring them to participate in genetics, um, and ensuring that 
they have the resources and facilities to be able to do so. All right. Well, Neil, thanks so much for coming in and, and for your, your work on this. Thank you so much for having me. After the break, how an American fighter jet took down a Chinese spy balloon and what the military is doing to recover the debris. We'll be right back. Chinese surveillance balloon the size of three buses traversed the U.S. last week until the military shot it down off the coast of South Carolina. The incident has elevated existing tension between the two countries. Brian Clark is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. Brian, welcome back. Thanks, Mimi. Great to be here. So let's start with the takedown yeah. of that balloon. It was an F-22 and it fired a Sidewinder missile. Walk us through that. So uh, to find the uh, balloon, you have to keep it under visual observation because these balloons have a very small radar signature. There's not very much metal on them. It's hard to use a radar to track them. So you have to watch them. And so they had aircraft basically watching these uh, with the balloon the entire uh, portion of its flight and then as it got off uh, the coast of South Carolina the aircraft got into a position to where they could shoot it um, if they got the order to do so. The, the missile they used, uh, the Sidewinder, is an infrared seeking missile so it's designed to shoot other aircraft uh, that have a, a heat signature because they've got engines or they're going fast. The balloon doesn't have either one of those so to, to shoot it you have to actually line the aircraft up in such a way that you're just going to shoot down the line of bearing from the aircraft to the balloon. The missile can't do any real guidance of its own. So you have to just point and shoot just as like you're shooting a rifle uh, at the balloon and the, the missile goes through the balloon, punctures it, and then the payload falls to the ocean. So it's really not that easy. No, no, it's a very difficult proposition um, and it took multiple aircraft to be able to both monitor the balloon and then actually do the uh, engagement of it. And the, the Sidewinder itself, I, I looked it up, it's $380,000 right. uh, for the one missile. Right. <laughs> it, it, that's a lot of money. I mean, could we have done this cheaper? That, unfortunately, that's about the cheapest way that we could have done this, at least from the missile perspective. Uh, guns wouldn't really work because you couldn't quite get close enough for the guns to work. Uh, the balloon's at a, a, about 60,000 feet. Uh, the uh, F-22 can almost go to, to 60,000 feet. Um, so you're shooting up at the balloon. Uh, you're having to do it from a couple of miles away so unclear if guns could really have done the job so you really needed that that that's the cheapest missile in the inventory the Navy is collecting the debris now Correct. from from the ocean what's right. that process like so the uh, the water is pretty shallow right there and they did this on purpose uh, in an area of shallow water so 40 to 60 feet deep uh, so they're sending unmanned underwater vehicles to drive around underwater drones to survey the bottom and look for objects on the bottom, uh, find metal-like uh, objects that could be debris, uh, and then retrieve those with remotely operated vehicles, little robots like you see on, on TV where they, where they will send a uh, robot down there with a cable to it and it'll grapple things and bring them back up to the surface. And is that just a cleanup operation, or is there any intelligence that can be gathered right. from, the, from that well, debris? Well, it's mostly to gather intelligence. And this is, um, it used to be, this is how the U.S. gathered a lot of intelligence on the Soviets during the Cold War, is things would fall off airplanes, bombs would drop off, missiles would be lost, uh, and you'd recover them from the ocean and then do intelligence analysis on them. So that's the process here, is gather up as much of the debris you can, go take it back to the lab, have the forensic scientists look at it and see what it might have been able to do. It seems very low-tech this whole balloon thing. I mean, there are satellites, there are spy satellites. Right. Every, right. Uh, most countries have them. Right. <laughs> Why do a balloon? Well, the balloons are interesting. One, they're, they're cheap. 
Um, so these balloons you know, are a couple hundred thousand dollars, depending on what they carry. Um, and But they can take a look at things that a satellite can't see. So normally uh, a satellite has a very predictable orbit. So if you expect a spy satellite to come over your location, you stop whatever you're doing while the satellite goes overhead, and then you pick back up again when the satellite leaves. Um, but uh, if there's a balloon overhead, it can remain there for days or weeks or months. Um, so you can't really stop what you're doing, or else you have to just shut down your operation entirely. Uh, the other thing, the balloon it can look at a close uh, you know, closer range, so it gets better pictures, uh, and it can look at different angles than a satellite could. So you really get a, a much different brand of intelligence from the balloon than you could from a satellite. You know, reports were indicating that the president had wanted to shoot it down immediately. The right. Pentagon said, no, we can't shoot it down over right. the U.S. because it could harm people on the ground. Right. Is that true? There's a lot of areas right. of the U.S. that are very sparsely populated. Sure, uh, there are. Um, part of the problem is it's, it's 60,000 feet and it's a balloon, so if you puncture the balloon, it's going to drift in a kind of unknown way down to the surface. So it, it could be a pretty large area that you have to clear. Now that could happen, um, but we did just see in Poland where an air defense missile uh, after it blowing up its target came back to the ground and killed two people in a house where you know they didn't expect the debris to land so it's hard to predict exactly where all the debris from the missile and from the balloon are going to end up so it's probably the on the safer side to do this now what they did do is try to jam uh, the communications of the balloon while it transited the United States to prevent it from sending intelligence back uh, to China and do we have any indication if that was successful well, the Pentagon says it's successful, or NORTHCOM said it was successful. Um, I, I expect it was. It wouldn't be very difficult to do that using the jamming capabilities the U.S. military has. A lot of critics of the administration are saying this balloon should have never been allowed to get over the, the right. continental United States. It should have been shot down over the Pacific. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I, I think that it probably should have been engaged, you know, shot down before it reached U.S. territory. Um, back during the Cold War, these kinds of over overflights were uh, routine uh, under the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, that treaty uh, lapsed, and, and there's not a treaty like that with China, so there's no relationship that allows us to do surveillance of each other. So they should have done something to interdict it before it got over U.S. territory. And what do you think this means for U.S.-China relations? I mean, things right. just got a whole lot tenser. Right, <laughs> absolutely. Well, it's an example of you know China continuing to push the envelope uh, like they have over in the South China Sea and East China Sea, uh, the gray zone warfare that they've been mounting where they sort of stay below the level of combat but try to poke at their opponents to get them to back down and, and get China more influence and, and access. That, that is just another example of that. So we, at some point we have to figure out how to resist these uh, those provocations in a proportional way. All right. Well, Brian, thanks so much for being on the program. My pleasure, Mimi. Great to be here. Coming next, a new report looks into what Americans think of federal government services. More on the findings, including which agency people are most happy with. That's next. After years of decline, American satisfaction with federal government services has jumped more than 4%. That's according to the American Customer Satisfaction Index 2022 Federal Government Report. Forrest Morgison is the Director of Research at the organization. Forrest, welcome to the program. Good morning. So what are the factors that you measure when calculating customer satisfaction? 
Well, we have sort of a complex survey instrument that we use to interview several thousand Americans each year, and we look at various attributes that are important in determining satisfaction with federal government services. We also look at some uh, a variety of indicators of that satisfaction itself, and then some outcomes of satisfaction, where we look at the customer's likelihood to complain, um, their likelihood to develop trust with the government and recommend government services and things like that. And you also look at things like the agency's website, how good it is, how easy it is to maneuver around it. Yeah, absolutely. So those are really important parts of interactions with federal government at this time, as we all know. Um, the ability to get onto an agency's or a program's website and easily download information or download for forms that you may need to complete, those kinds of things. Um, so we look at those websites and we look at customer service personnel and customer service representatives if you need to call in or interact in some other way, um, on-site still for some services. So we try to have it as broad and deep as possible across the different ways that, that citizens actually interact with federal government. And last year you saw an overall 4.4% increase. It, it went to a score of 66.3. What contributed to that rise? Well, there were a variety of factors that went into that rise. I think uh, ultimately the interpretation that can be taken away is a lot of it was just um, sort of clawing back some of the losses that occurred um, before, but mostly during COVID. Um, COVID obviously had a huge impact across the economy in companies' abilities to offer you know, their normal goods and services to consumers. And the same can be said for the federal government as well, where it was just more difficult to serve the larger number of people who needed service. And how does this number compare historically? You guys have been doing this survey for, for many years. We have. This has been going on for more than 20 years now. Um, historically, the number is still a little bit low. So as, as we talk about in the report that we released um, last week, it's clawed back. It's gotten back some of the losses that occurred during COVID, but it hasn't gotten all the way back. Um, and historically, and this probably won't come as a huge surprise, but historically, we've seen the federal government come in um, somewhere between a little bit and quite a bit below um, the average um, customer satisfaction for the private sector. So the number is still well below the private sector. It's gained back some of what it lost during COVID, um, but it's still got a ways to go. And in 2022, the Department of Interior topped the satisfaction index for the second year in a row. Why is that? Um, you know, we have historically seen the Department of Interior, uh, interestingly enough, come in near the top among all the departments that we measure satisfaction with. Generally, we attribute this to some of the programs um, within the Department of Interior and particularly um, the National Park Service. Those tend to be relatively low cost services that citizens really, really enjoy given their you know natural beauty and all of those kinds of things. Um, and so we, we generally attribute Department of Interior's strong performance as a department to, to that particular program within the department. And what other agencies did well for customer satisfaction? <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, there aren't a, a great many that we point out as being leaders across the economy in terms of customer service. Interior is usually up there at the top. Um, and we'll have a few others that do well. Um, then so what about the ones that don't do so well? Who, who scored low? Well, I, again, I don't know that this will come as a huge surprise to anyone who follows these sorts of things, but the IRS usually comes in at the bottom, the Department of Treasury um, and the IRS. And that is, of course, the, 
given the nature of their mission, not terribly surprising. Well, um, I was going to say, that's kind of not fair. I mean, uh, nobody wants to pay taxes. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and that, that's exactly right. And we're always careful to point that out. I mean, of course, we, we would like to see, um, you know, more efficient and, and uh, better service coming from even the IRS. But the reality is, is that given what they're doing, which is essentially uh, forcing us to give them their money, um, you know, it's never going to be a highly satisfying experience, no matter how strong they improve it. Again, you'd like to see some improvements at the margins, but uh, the reality of the nature of the mission is going to make it difficult. Well, what are those improvements that they can make? I, and I know that you're, you're a research organization, not in the business of making recommendations, but I'm just curious as to what you think could be done. I, they can't change their mission, but what, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think they've done some of it, and we have seen some improvement, at least um, within particular um, different methods of filing over the years, as they've moved to push as many individual filers as they can over to electronic filing and some of the, the ease that that brings to the tax filing process, they've done a little bit better. And I think, you know, that may continue um, as they're able to get more and more uh, citizens over there and more and more small and mid-side businesses to, to adopt those relatively more pleasing kinds of electronic methods. Um, it's tough, though. Not only is their mission a difficult one, but they're, you know, they're a political lightning rod. So the agency itself, um, whenever we have a shift in, in Congress or in the White House, the agency itself may find itself with very different mandates, very different staffing levels, budgets, and those kinds of things. So um, it, it, is, it is a difficult mission. All right. Well, Forrest, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.